You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This is the word of the Lord from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as we head into the fall together, and I'm sure you would agree like me, I'm thankful that the weather is starting to feel more like we're heading into the fall together. I had originally planned to go for the next several weeks between now and Advent and, and be in the book of Esther. And I had not chosen that because they're doing that in Branson. Okay, that has nothing to do with it. I, I planned that months ago, and, and our last several series we've been in the New Testament together. So honestly, I've been anxious to get back into the Old Testament, and we're going to do that. But as I was praying about where we're headed next and, and just going through the last weeks to be fully transparent this morning, knowing that we've just had some bumps in the road in this transition time that our church has been in, I started to feel this sense that the Lord was saying, you know, let's, let's pause Esther for a minute. Let's push that back just a bit. And let's come back in the New Testament together and talk, much like we did last week from Acts chapter 2, about what it means to be the church and who we're called to be as the church. Let's have a bit of a family chat for the next few weeks, but let Scripture be our guide as we do so. And so this morning, I would encourage you to, to pray for me and pray for us that as I preach, I'm also going to be pastoring just a little bit and asking that the Lord would speak to us through his word to the church that was written to Titus and to these believers back in ancient Crete so long ago that it would also be a word for us. In case you're wondering if I hear that, yes, I hear that noise. I mean, this has been going on for a while, and I never like to call out things that are a distraction, but it seems to be extra today, and that may be happening for a reason. We have been dealing with a snap, crackle, and pop for a while. We've had some professionals in here that actually got rid of the crackle, but the pop is still here. So uh, as if we hear it, hopefully it won't be too much of a distraction as we go this morning. You know, one of the things I love about the New Testament letters to the churches is that they're a reminder, they're very realistic, that no church is perfect. 
And even when, when Paul or John or Peter are writing to these ancient churches and we look back at our forebears of faith and we think what an inspiration they are and, and we as the church today are built upon the foundation that they laid for us. But they weren't perfect. And in every single letter we find even the most encouraging ones, some things that they need to work on and some areas where they need to sharpen the tools and sharpen each other just a bit. And Titus is one of those letters where in chapter 2 specifically that we read this morning, Paul steps on everybody's toes. Doesn't matter their age, doesn't matter if they're a man or woman, doesn't matter their background, their walk of life. Everybody gets a word from Paul speaking under the leadership of the Holy Spirit in Titus 2. And so this morning I pray that every single one of us will also get that word because it comes from God's word to us. And I've titled what we're going to do the next three weeks, Life Together. And I stole that title from a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer that many of you have probably read. If you've never read this, this short book before, it is short, but it is not a fast read because it is rich and it is deep. And I would highly recommend that for the next few weeks, if you have not read this or if it's been a while, pick up a copy of Life Together and read through this along with what we're going to be talking about on Sunday mornings because it is such an incredible 20th century word to, to the church today, specifically to the church in the West. And so we'll talk about this book each week, and I'll just give you one quote a week, but I would encourage you to read along with me. But life together is this idea that we, as God's people, live in a community together. And specifically this morning, we're going to talk about this biblical concept that we are the family of God. And just like our personal families, the family of God and the church family like this one is made up of all different kinds of people. And whether you know this or not, it is not always easy to pastor a multi-generational church like this one, where lots of generations are worshiping together and lots of people with different preferences and backgrounds and ideas and thoughts are all in one place. And, and we try to navigate that and walk through that together. It's not just about a church or even generations when we come to that. Frankly, when you're just with a group of people, sometimes it's hard to do life together. But we are blessed. The fact that we are a multi-generational church is a strength. How many churches do you know in Tulsa or, or where your family or your friends attend where they would love to be able to look out and see the young people that we have see the diversity that we have see the nations that are represented in this congregation see the wisdom and the experience and the love for all different kinds of styles of teaching and music and, and everything that we have in our church family this is a great place to be and we are blessed but we're also people and like those first churches, we're not perfect. Like the people in Crete, who, whom the young pastor Titus was serving, to whom Paul was writing, we are not perfect. But I pray today that as we, we walk through some of these verses and a lot of other scripture together, that the Lord would remind us that we are a family and that what we do and the way we treat each other, it matters. This message is going to be different than the way I usually teach and preach because I like to have points on the screen and scriptures and quotes and history and Greek and Hebrew words and all of that. And today, rather than having anything on the screen, if you want to follow along, have your Bibles open to Titus 2 and get yourself in a good listening posture to be able to hear and to receive the word of the Lord today. And I pray that God will speak to our hearts just as he has spoken through these words throughout the centuries. 
So Paul begins in chapter 2, verse 1 of Titus, with Titus. He says, young pastor, here's something important for you to remember right up front. You must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And this, this word of exhortation is for Titus, yes, but I would say it is for anyone who takes up the role of teaching in the family of God and in the church. We have a lot of teachers in this church, some who teach from the pulpit, some who teach from the pulpit in the chapel, some who lead a small group, some who lead a Bible study group. We have lots of teachers in our church, and this instruction is for all of us who teach. We must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. But notice what then follows. What Paul starts to deal with specifically with all of these age groups are not issues of doctrine that relate to most of the things that we argue about in churches like ours today. He doesn't deal with methods of baptism. He doesn't deal with styles of music. He doesn't deal with their views on predestination or the end times or anything like that. But what he actually deals with first, not that those things aren't important, but what he actually deals with first with every single group addressed is the nature of their character and their walk and their godliness and that those would be the, the doctrines that were firm and secure that their lives and their relationships with the Lord were on the solid ground and then some of those other discussions which the New Testament talks about as well then those can be taken up you must teach what is appropriate with sound doctrine and and then Paul moves to some different age groups. And again, everyone's included. He steps on everybody's toes. He says everybody has a part to play. And whether you're older or younger, man or woman, slave or free, there's something here specifically that, that Paul felt led to write to you. To the older men, first and foremost. Teach the older men, he says, Titus, teach them to be temperate, which another word for that could be balanced. Teach the older men to be well-balanced, to be worthy of the respect that they want, to be self-controlled, to be sound in faith, and also to be sound in love and in endurance. Here in just a few months, I'm going to be 45 years old. Can you believe that? Yes, now in both services, somebody has gone, thank you, I appreciate, appreciate that. Look, when I came here, I was... I was only 37 and I felt like I was 25. I'm 45 and I feel like I don't know, but I don't know how old I feel, but some of you all are to blame for that, all right? But depending on who you are, where you are, 45 either still sounds young or it sounds way, way old. I'm just going to say I'm middle, okay? I'm somewhere in the middle. But as I look at this text, I feel like the way it's written, I'm closer to this group than I am to the group that he addresses later as the younger men. And when I think about the kind of man that I want to be as I grow older, I want to be the kind of man, the kind of father, the kind of grandfather, Lord willing, not any day soon, but the kind of grandfather, the kind of husband, the kind of son, grandson, brother, friend, pastor. I want to be the kind of man that as I grow older, I grow kinder. As I grow older, I grow more thankful. As I go, grow older, certainly I, I grow wiser. But I also continue to have an appreciation for those who are walking alongside of me and for those who are coming behind me. I remember hearing a story a few years ago of a professor at a Christian school who was, was teaching a new group of incoming students. 
And he was talking to the students in his class about the doxology that we love to sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, right? And he was shocked to learn that only one student in his class knew the doxology. And he was so upset that this group of young students in this Christian school had never heard of the doxology that he just started railing against them and, and, and he went on a tirade. And the professor started saying, I want names. I want the name of your pastor. I want the name of your parents. I want the name of your music minister. All of these people are going to hear from me. I can't believe you grew up in church and you don't know the doxology. But I wonder what that classroom setting might have looked like if that professor, rather than going on the tirade and rather than being angry with those, those younger students because they didn't know something that was important to him and important to the church, that he would have stopped and he would have said, oh, let me tell you what you've missed. Let me tell you why the doxology is so important to the church and how it's been important over the years. And let me tell you why the doxology is so important to me and why it's special and meaningful. Consider the, the difference in tone and the difference in shepherding and the way that, 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 that multi-generational relationships can look in that environment as opposed to the other. Listen, we live in a culture that is always trying to inflame the differences and the disagreements between our generations. And they are there. I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm stuck between the boomers and the millennials who don't say nice things about each other. And Gen Xers understand that. But listen, that's what our culture does. That's not what it's supposed to look like in the church. And what other church do you know of where we have a better opportunity than this one to live in those kind of relationships and model what it can look like when Christ's love is at the center of generations being together in a community? Older men, be those guys. Be worthy of respect. Be self-controlled. Be sound in your faith, sound in love, sound in endurance. Be well-balanced. And then he speaks to the older women. And I'm going to be very careful with this one and just remind you, okay, this is Paul writing here from the Holy Spirit. But he says, teach the older women, first of all, to be reverent in the way that they live. Not to be slanderers. And it, that word slander, just as a reminder, when we were in James, we came across that word. And in the New Testament, it might mean something slightly different than the way we use the word slander in English. The literal word for slander in the New Testament is to speak against. And a way we can say it in English is to badmouth somebody. Teach the older women to be, to be reverent in the way that they live, not to badmouth others, not to be addicted to much wine, but to teach, yes, ladies, to teach, to teach what is good. I hear Paul saying here, be the kind of older woman that those who are younger than you can watch and emulate. And as they watch and emulate you, if you are living in a way that is Christ-like, they'll learn to do the same. Hopefully you remember from our Old Testament reading just a few moments ago, Psalm 145. One generation commends your works to the next. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. To the older women, Paul says, speak of God's wonderful works from your generation to the next and do it in a way that, that, that comes with reverence and life and, and also wisdom and self-control and kindness and speak and lead in such a way that those who are younger than you will see Christ in you. You know, I think one of 
the reasons why Paul probably felt led to start with the older men and women was not just as a sign of respect, but as a reminder that, that, that there's not only the example setting that is a part of our responsibility as the older men and women, but along with the responsibility is the reality that at some point we're going to hand this thing off. At some point, we who are the older are going to hand this thing off to the younger. Whether we're talking about the church, whether we're talking about our community, whether we're talking about our country, whatever, whatever you want to say, we who are older, this is just the way it works, right? We're going to hand it off to those who come behind us. We don't have a choice in the matter. And what shape are we going to have left things in when that handoff is made at some point we have to hand off and we are no longer the ones running the race they will be running the race and what will it look like for us whether we're talking about as parents or grandparents or church members church family friends bosses relatives whatever those roles are neighbors what is that handoff going to look like let me tell you our, our younger generations are facing things that as we see them and we all can acknowledge they don't seem to be getting better in a lot of ways they seem to be getting worse and there are a lot of messes already present that are going to probably continue to be messes when the handoff is made and if we are not building them up in the body on the firm foundation of the word of god as the primary place from which we build them up not from all those other places i'm not sure that handoff is going to be as smooth as we pray that it's going to be and I'll tell you something that doesn't work with younger people is to say to them, oh, we can't talk about that. Or to say to them, oh, you know, that I'm going to dismiss that entirely because it sounds like this or it sounds like that. We've been able in our generations to deal with some hard things, haven't we, in church? We've been able to sit down and have some conversations and say, biblically, what does it look like for us to live faithfully in the culture we're living in? And we've got to be willing to do the same thing with them. And if we will listen to them, they're going to be more likely to listen to us. That's what that intergenerational relationship can look like. That's what that dialogue of shepherding and, and mutual respect can bring. We have not only the responsibility to be an example, but the reality that they will take the mantle and they will run with it after we're gone. Okay, to the younger women. I feel a little safer to move to the younger women. Verses 4 and 5. I just picture talking to my grandmother in, in verse 3, and so I, she's the most wonderful person in the world, so I just had to be careful there, okay? Verses 4 and 5. Then the older women can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Paul addressing women at all, by the way, was countercultural. But he does so in a first century where women really didn't have a voice. He does so again to remind them that, that they play a role. They are a part of this family and they are just as valuable as anyone else. We have in our church, I think you know, so many women of all ages, young ladies, women of all ages who serve and who lead and who use their gifts in so many ways that bless us as a church. We're blessed with that here at South Tulsa. But Paul says to the older women, remind the younger women, whether it's in their home or whether it's in the marketplace, wherever they are, they, through their work and their lifestyle, have the opportunity also to be an example 
and to be an influence, either for good or for bad. And in the middle of his instructions, first and foremost, take care of your families. Be faithful as a wife. Be faithful as a mother. Be faithful in your home, whatever that role is. He also then slips in there those two little words, be kind to the younger women, be kind. It's amazing how much kindness can, can almost immediately be, be able to communicate to people the love of Christ. Be kind, he says. And, and, and I have a wonderful example of this in my own home because in addition to my grandmother, I'm also married to the other kindest person I've ever met in my life. And that's my wife. And Rebecca, sometimes if you see her, she will wear a shirt that says, just says, be kind on it. Now that, that's a lot of pressure. If you're wearing it on the t-shirt, you better live it out. But being kind is, is a strength. It's a gift. It's a blessing. And it's an encouragement that Paul gives to the younger women that certainly would apply to the older women and to the older men and to, to any who would hear this message. And there's a beautiful result that comes out of the way the younger women are called to live in verse 5. When you live that way, Paul says, so that no one will malign the word of God. That, that truly younger women and others in the church can live in, in such a way with such faithfulness that rather than maligning the word of God, which people will do, people will praise the word of God because they will see it being lived out in flesh and blood in a way that is attractive in a way that, that represents light in the midst of the darkness Paul then turns in verse 6 to the younger men and it seems a bit unfair doesn't it if you're reading along it's like the older men get a long list the older women get a long list the younger women get a long list and then the younger men get one sentence Verse 6, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. If you consider yourself in the category of the young men, I want you to look at me, okay? This is not the only command for you in Scripture, to just this one, to be self-controlled. In fact, the word that's used there that's translated similarly is really important in this verse. And that ultimately what it does is it's basically saying, in addition to everything else that I said to the older men, the older women, and the younger women, younger men, I'm going to double down on this one for you. Be self-controlled. Because for younger men, that is a constant struggle. Learning to be self-controlled, which is a fruit of the Spirit, in Galatians 5, that's for everyone. Learning to be self-controlled is, is, is a, an awful lot like building up a muscle, right? It, is, it takes discipline. It takes practice and it takes work and young men by and large by our nature young men are not always naturally good at being self-controlled we have to learn that and in some cases we learn that discipline at home or we learn that discipline in the community of faith or we learn that discipline when when we play a sport or when we learn to play an instrument or in the academic world we build up some muscles we build up some practices and some habits that help us be better at self-control but make no mistake paul says this clearly this is not just a practice to develop through life it is a characteristic of a godly man to be self-controlled and to the young men specifically he says in addition to all those other things so yes you also need to be reverent you also need to be worthy of respect you also need to be kind all of those other things doubling down he says but be self-controlled and 
Watch, listen to me, young men, watch your life and be self-controlled. And Titus is one of those young men. So in verses 7 and 8, Paul returns to Titus. He talked to him specifically in the beginning and simply said, teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. But now he comes back to Titus and he says, and in addition to your teaching, be a good example by doing what is right. Teach with integrity. Teach in a way that is honest, that is not manipulative, that is faithful to the word of God. And practice what you preach. Teach with seriousness, where Titus, you'll hold a very high respect for God's word, and that will be evident in what you teach. And teach with a soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, even by those who oppose you, those who want to malign the word of God. Teach with such soundness and godliness and live as such a good example that those who want to malign the word of God or listen, those who want to say something bad about you will be ashamed because they will see what is true and right and they will have nothing bad to say about us because you are preaching, teaching, and living faithfully. The responsibility to the pastor, to the young pastor, in this case Titus, is significant. But I love that Paul also brings in everybody else. And the last group that he addresses is not identified by their age, but rather by their status and their standing, or we should say the lack thereof, their lack of status and standing. Paul writes specifically to slaves. We talked about this when we studied Titus a couple of years ago, that nearly half of the population in the Roman Empire at this time were slaves. It was far less common as the empire grew and spread and conquered by force for people to be citizens than it was for people to be slaves, for people to be free as opposed to being slaves. It was far less common. And Crete being an island, the Christians in this church, probably there was a large percentage of slaves represented because Crete was a, a, a hotbed for the slave trade. And, and there, there was pirate activity and all kinds of things going on there. So there were probably many in the church to whom Paul was writing. And notice what he says to them. Live your lives, slaves, in such a way that in every way you make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And I want to be clear, as I was when we went through Titus a couple of years ago, the Bible is not condoning slavery here. Paul is not condoning slavery. But what he says to the slaves is, while you're in this situation you also can make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And you can do so by being subject to your masters, trying to please them, not talking back to them, not stealing from them, showing them that you can fully be trusted. And even in the midst of suffering where your freedom is restricted or taken away from you altogether, you can still make the gospel about God our Savior attractive. Because even your masters who have authority over you on earth, they won't have authority over you forever, might be able to see the truth of the word of God because they see it in you. In this text, no one is excluded. Scripture here speaks to all ages, to all walks of life. Everyone is included. Everyone's toes are stepped on. And everyone has a part to play. And as we think this morning about what 
what it means for us to be a family, to be the family of God. As I said a moment ago, just like in our, our personal families, the family of God is made up of people of all different kinds. And we feel more comfortable with some than others. We feel more confident with some than others. We like being around some more than others. But just like in our, our personal families, whether immediate or extended, we're still a family. I don't know how your family works, but I know how my family has worked, even with the crazy uncles in our family, okay? And there's none on my wife's side, but there's some on my side, okay? We still, we're still family, and we still get together at the important seasons of life. And we're still there for each other, sometimes in the best times and sometimes in the worst. Sometimes I have family members, I never see them unless somebody gets married or somebody dies. But we're still family, or there's some other big event. And we as a family have to learn sometimes that we go through seasons where we don't get along, but, but there's always forgiveness available. And there's always an opportunity to be included. And ultimately, we do, we do want what's best for each other. And like it or not, whatever we go through, whether we want to claim it or not, we're still family all the way to the end. The same thing is true about the family of God, but hopefully in a more joyful way than that. We are family no matter what. And if what the Bible teaches us is true, guess what? We're going to live together for a long, long time. We're going to be together forever. We're going to be, ever, be together past our, our physical death. We're going to be family throughout eternity. We are always going to be the children of God. And that's, by the way, what the New Testament tells us we are. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Some of you, this, these are verses you've committed to memory. Yet to all who did receive him, him being Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And then John says later in 1 John 3, see what great love our Father has lavished on us that we should even be called children of God. And then John says, but that is who we are. That is who we are. We are the children of God. Paul says in Romans 8, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And if we are his children, then we are also his heirs. We are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. And yet another reminder as we are heirs that we are going to live together forever. We're going to inherit his kingdom together forever. We are the family of God. I know that in the last few weeks, and, and please don't hear me making it sound like things are worse than they are. There's, they're not. But in some isolated areas and some specific situations, we've, we've been dealing with some frustration. We've been dealing with, in some cases, some hurt and some disagreement. And that sometimes is going to happen in a family. But I want you to hear me, and, and we'll, we'll get a little more pointed about this next week and the week after. Nothing will destroy the good work that God is doing in our midst faster than if we bite and devour each other. Nothing will destroy. It will not be an attack from the outside that will be nearly as effective to destroy the work that God is doing than if on the inside we bite and devour each other. And the New Testament has a lot to say about this to us. There are several do-nots that are addressed to the churches of the New Testament that are our word for us. Do not, for example, James said, do not let out of your mouth, out of the same mouth, come praise and cursing of your brother or sister. That should not be. 
Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Do not grumble against one another, James wrote. In Romans 14, Paul wrote, Therefore let us stop passing judgment on each other, but instead make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of your brother or sister. Philippians 2, do nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves not looking for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, Paul said, as Christ Jesus. Treat each other the way Jesus has treated others. Galatians 5, using the words I, I used a moment ago, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, get rid of all bitterness all rage and anger, brawling and slander. What was going on in Ephesus, by the way, when Paul said, get rid of your brawling, don't brawl with each other. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. But on the good side, here's some other things the New Testament says we should do in our relationship with each other. There are the do-nots, but here are some of the things we're told we should do. Love one another, Jesus said. As I have loved you, you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples as you love one another. Hebrews chapter 10, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and towards good deeds as we run the race together. Romans 12, be devoted to one another in love and honor one another. Honor one another above yourselves. James 1 Brothers and sisters, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Listen to these words from Colossians 3. They're so rich. Therefore, as God's chosen people, as his children, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. Put these things on. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Over all these virtues, put on love, because love binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell, dwell among you richly as you teach each other and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing together with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Ephesians chapter 4. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love and make every effort, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then finally, Galatians 6. Therefore, wherever we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family. That's the word used, the family of believers. I want you to hear, as we, as we close, I want you to hear from me, and I mean this with all of my heart. When I read those do nots, when I read those do's, all those things that we're called to be, I read those texts to myself in the mirror, okay? This is not, I'm pastoring while I'm preaching, but I am not talking down to you. 
and I'm not talking and, and, and will not these, these weeks be talking only in the second person. You, you, you. This is us. This, we are the family of God. I need forgiveness. I make mistakes. I forget to clothe myself with all, myself with all of those things like humility and patience and, and gentleness and kindness. I do those things too. But there are things in the family of God that as we walk in the Spirit together, there are things that, that do come from the Holy Spirit and there are things that do not. And there are things that are biblical as we walk in relationship to each other and there are things that are not. And when we see in, in the family that there are some of those things happening that are not from the Holy Spirit, they're not biblical, we've got to encourage each other and spur each other on towards that which is good. We are called to be patient to build up, to spur on, to sing, to share wisdom, to honor one another, and to pray for each other. We don't tear each other down. In this family, we don't tear each other down. We don't slander each other. We don't gossip about each other. We don't become critical, overly critical of each other. We don't always complain about each other. And when we mess up in any of those areas, we forgive each other, right? When we mess up in the, any of those areas, we forgive each other because that's what we do with family. And that's who we are. We are the family of God, the children of God, the sons and daughters of the King of Kings, co-heirs with Him. And we're going to be together forever. So listen to these last words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together. This beautiful word he gives that I hope will be an encouragement to us and will lead us into our time of invitation. Bonhoeffer wrote, I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face, even if at one point was dislikable to me, is transformed when I intercede for him into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died the face of a forgiven sinner. The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede, and the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. Listen to this last sentence. We have one another only through Christ. We have one another only through Christ. But through Christ, we do have one another, and we have one another for eternity. We are the family of God. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, I thank you from, from the bottom of my heart for blessing me with this church family. I thank you for the ways that, that I've been able to grow with these brothers and sisters personally for the love that they show to me and to my family, for the love my family has for them. What a joy it is as a pastor and a father to see how much my children love their church. And Lord, I thank you that we get to walk through life together. We are not having to do this alone. And that we have the, the blessing, the privilege to be with such fine people as we walk in this journey of faith together. I thank you for each person here and from our previous service and those watching online and those who couldn't be here today and those 
who haven't been with us for a bit will be back. Whoever else, Lord, you'll bring to join us. I thank you for all of them and the ways that you are using their gifts and their hearts for your glory. And Lord, I pray that as we move into this time of invitation that we would also hear those words from verse 11 in Titus 2. That salvation for all people has been made available. Because Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us, Jesus Christ, who has made the way that we can be in the family of God, Jesus Christ, who loves us so much that he would call us son and daughter, brother and sister, that he came to the earth, that he lived a perfect life without the flaws the rest of us have, that he died on the cross as our perfect sacrifice for our sin, that he rose again on the third day so that we can not only be forgiven from sin, but also we can know that death has been defeated. And Lord, we also thank you that Jesus Christ is coming back again and that we will be as the family of God together forever in perfection when Christ finishes his work. Lord, would you continue to do the work that you're doing in us? Would you draw us closer to you today in Jesus' name?